You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Beyond the computer is the demon seed. Demon seed. It is something more than human. It is a sensually self-programmed, murderously intelligent non-being. In the privacy of this woman's room, against her will, it commits the inconceivable act of terror. Do not tell me what you want. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. I am a mind without a body. I cannot touch you as a man. But my child shall live as a man among others. Child? Yes, my child and yours. MGM presents Julie Christie in Demon Seed. Rated R under 17, not admitted without peril. Released by United Artists. Julie Christie carries the Demon Seed. Fear for her. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Hi. Also with us this week is Mr. Bill Ackerman. I'm not a motorcycle. This week we're talking about the 1977 film from Donald Camel, Demon Seed. It's the story of a separated couple, Susan and Alex. Alex has created an advanced computer, Proteus 4, which takes over the house in which Susan lives, terrorizing her and mating with her, yes, to create a Proteus human being hybrid to rule the world. Now, we're going to be getting into some spoilers on this episode. Actually, I might have already spoiled it for you. So if you haven't seen Demon Seed, go ahead, stop the podcast, watch the movie, come on back. We'll still be here. Now, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Demon Seed, and what did you think? I'm thinking that I first saw it when it first came to video, and I just loved it. It, it To me, it was so bizarre and so perverse and so in keeping with that kind of creeping terror of artificial intelligences and computers that was very much a part of the world at that time. Suddenly everybody was thinking about, well, if everybody's got a computer, what are those computers going to do? It was a whole rise of the machines kind of paranoia. And I, I being a science fiction reader from the time I was a teenager, was totally on board with that. It seemed extremely scary to me. Um, the first time I saw Demon Seed was maybe 20 years ago, I was living in New Jersey and um, I was going to New York to the Kim's video chain there. And I was renting uh, videotapes from uh, what I would do is I would rent three tapes from all three or all four um, locations, take them back to New Jersey and like copy them around the clock. And uh, my friend who went with me was a big sci-fi buff and he brought Demon Seed over to me and we rented it based on his suggestion. Um, I remember thinking, looking at the big box MGM tape with uh, Julie Christie with the wires draped over her face. I I think for some reason, because of the title seed in the title, I was thinking of plants. So I was registering the wires as um, as weeds. So I was expecting something like Day of the Triffids or Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And uh, I had known Julie Christie only from Don't Look Now, I think, at that age. I'd seen performance in White of the Eye, but I didn't really have a sense of who Donald Camel was at that age. Having now read the novel, the only memories I really had of the movie were the scenes between Susan and Proteus, which is pretty much mostly what the novel is. Um, and I remember thinking that the um, like the premise was so outrageous, but it, it kind of worked because the performance was so strong in it. 
I think I saw this one, yeah, probably like late 90s, maybe earlier than that. I, It just seems like one of those where I knew the premise before I even saw the video box for some reason. I don't know if like somebody I knew maybe read the book. I didn't read the book until recently. But uh, I've always been kind of fascinated by these uh, computers falling in love with human stories. You know, we talked a little bit about that, you and I, Maitland, a few months ago when we were on the Colossus, the Foreman Project episode. And, you know, I'm a, I was a big fan of Electric Dreams when that was out. So, and, you know, enjoyed uh, the young spirit of Joshua that was inside of Whopper. So, Demon Seed just kind of fit in and kind of scratched that itch that I have for seeing a computer and human interaction. I don't know if I realized the first time that the voice of Proteus was Robert Vaughn, but I just realized he had a really good voice, whoever it was doing it. And uh, yeah, I, I really liked this one the first time uh, through, and I think I still like it today, even though I, I it, it's kind of a strangely paced movie, let's put it that way. I really love Demon Seed, frankly, and its pacing, I think, perhaps is slow by contemporary standards, but I find it quite enthralling, and I think that if it moved any more quickly, the preposterousness of it might become overwhelming. You might not be able to go with it, but because it builds up, not its premise, but the unfolding of the premise in a very careful and very systematic way... I think by the time you get to the really outrageous parts of it, it doesn't even seem outrageous. I mean, it's kind of shocking, and it, it is kind of wild in a very sexual way, but it makes sense, given the way the movie has unfolded from the beginning. I will definitely say it is very expertly crafted as far as the screenplay goes. I like that we're introduced to the Alex character first, uh, played by Fritz Weaver, and it was unusual seeing Fritz Weaver in this very sedate role for me. I kind of came to him through, what was it, the reanimator, where he's a little more unhinged in that. Seeing him here as a scientist who was much more in control of his faculties, I, I appreciated that. And it takes a little while until we're introduced to Susan. We're introduced to the idea of him being this computer scientist pretty darn early on. And then it's interesting to me trying to figure out what the relationship is between Alex and Susan, because we know that there's something there, you know, they're, they're splitting up for some reason, but I'm not exactly sure why for at least the first little bit inside of this film. I think that that, that aspect of the broken relationship really is the trigger for the way this entire movie works. They're, they are both clearly intelligent people, She's a psychologist. She works with children. He's a scientist who works with computers. They're a smart, professional couple. There's no obvious reason why they should be having such trouble in their marriage, and yet when we're introduced to them, they're about to separate. So clearly there's a huge problem there. And I think that one of the things that draws you into the story is you want to know, well, why is their marriage not working out? They actually seem like a really great couple who are not just to people who like each other, but people whose professional ideas are very much aligned with one another. And yet, there's something completely, utterly wrong with the way their lives are going. And I, I remember looking at, at it for the first time and thinking, what's their problem? They seem like a great couple. Why is everything so wrong with them? 
Well, I love that shot of the glasses falling, and we get that nice, I think it's a slow-mo shot of his glasses breaking, and him picking it up and looking through the the broken lenses and saying that, you know, we have different visions of the world. It's a little heavy-handed for a metaphor and everything, but I think it really works in this case, and it's a great kind of you know, opening introduction to these two characters, because you're right, there is a, a question mark above them as to, you know, they seem rather civil with one another, but she just needs to go away. And when he tries to, you know, cajole her into sticking around and reconciling and everything, it doesn't seem like there's any kind of, you know, violence or real problem going on here. So it, it, it is this nice mystery that, you know, it, it sets us up very early in the film to have this idea of wanting to know more and seeing how this story is going to unfold. So I thought that was a very nice way to move us into Demon Seed. And very specifically, it, it is about relationships and how relationships go wrong. And because basically, the bulk of this movie is about her relationship with Proteus, which just starts off wrong and gets wronger and wronger and wronger. Rewatching it this week, um, I I was reminded a little bit of uh, the relationship at the center of Don't Look Now, and not just because of the casting and Julie Christie, but because their the tension, the relationship is is brought upon to some extent by the death of the daughter. Um, and it's I guess it's it's almost more similar to the Daphne Du Maurier uh, original short story because you know in that one the the child doesn't drown, uh, she dies of meningitis, and and. I guess this this child dies of leukemia, but the way they respond to that loss, um, like his response is to become more you know, to remain rational in the face of increasingly unusual circumstances, and that's that holds true both of uh, the Donald Pleasant's character in Don't Look Now and uh, Fitz Luther character in uh, Demon Seed, and then her response uh, you could maybe see it as maybe growing more empathic, like she she looks into uh, you know, caring for. Uh, you know, troubled children you know, as a behavioral therapist. Um, so I don't know. I think that's that was something I just I picked up when I'm uh, rewatching it. Alex is that logical person, and he wants to go after cancer itself. He wants to cure leukemia, and he does. Basically, he, he builds this amazing computer. He's one of several scientists, it looks like, that's working on Proteus, and it's this has organic you know, components to it and everything. It learns, it grows. And then we've got Susan, who is much more of the emotional thing. And I don't know if it's just the whole idea of, you know, men are the, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus or whatever, but, you know, him being the cold emotional one and then her being the more empath empathic one. Though I was very, very happy to see when they do show us the scenes of that computer lab that we see at least two women in there. And I was really glad for that because I thought it was going to be like at first when they show the outside of the computer lab and these guys are walking up to it i was just like oh you know all guys this world of men we're going to have so i was very happy when we go inside and there's at least one woman at a keyboard kind of showing them what proteus is doing and then when we actually have one of the women teaching proteus and teaching him i, I think it was mandarin i'm not sure but you know it, it, speaking to him as an equal so i was very glad to have that yeah it's a really nice uh, aspect of this film that it doesn't subscribe to that notion of hard science, men, soft science, women. It's very clear that the Proteus team is filled with women who are working on the absolute hard science of the project and who are completely equal 
to the men with whom they are working. And it's not something that's emphasized in any particular way. It, it really does come across as simply an organic part of the way the Proteus Project is presented. What would that Joshua thing be for? I love Joshua, this kind of wheelchair with an arm. I can't think of any practical reason why Joshua would be around, unless maybe it was to help their daughter? For me, Joshua just shows how, how creepy technology can appear when it attempts to, to emulate the human body. So it, it, it's, it's something that's introduced that's not in the original novel. And in terms of what it's practically meant to you know, serve as in the household, I, I think it was supposed to maybe aid the daughter, but it's, it's unclear. To me, Joshua really embodies the conflict that a lot of people have about machines, which is that in their purest, most mechanically efficient form, machines are very alienating to a lot of people. They're just cables and, and mechanical pieces that look kind of frightening and, well, mechanical, because that's what they are. And so there's that very clear attempt to build a hand that looks like a human hand that makes Joshua look more human. And that, again, I think feeds into the theme of, of both the book and the movie, which has to do with the way in which people relate to machines and the way that they would like them to look a little bit more human because it makes them more comfortable. And yet the fundamental nature of machines is that they're not human. And you, you can mask a mechanical hand in all kinds of forms, but the fact is it's a, a collection of wires and metal joints that aren't human. Of course, there's a practical reason to have Joshua in the film, which is to give... Proteus some sort of control over the outside world, a more of a, I don't want to say a physical control, because I think one of the best, uh, or at least to me, the most memorable scene of the film, uh, or one of many, is the whole idea of him turning up the uh, controls in the kitchen in order to uh, control uh, the Susan character. But for me, the Joshua, well, of course, Joshua is going to be there in some sort to be the hand of Proteus, which is, you know, something that he needs in, in every medium that we're going to explore when it comes to Demon Seed. He always needs a hand or a set of hands. So it's uh, uh, curious to see how they kind of worked him in. And I have to say, you know, going back to the screenplay, as far as an ad adaptation goes, I, I thought that it was a nice thing to have this whole idea of a chair with an arm so it's able to pick her up, carry her around and everything. And it's kind of believable that it could work. I think I only laughed at one point when you see the hand kind of take her while she's wrapped in a sheet and plunk her from the chair onto the bed. I was just like, I don't know if that would work the physics of it or anything, but that it, it worked as far as the story went, I should say. But, you know, I think actually one of the most important things about Joshua is the way in which Joshua looks forward to the, birth of the machine baby, because Joshua's hand looks remarkably like that little tiny baby hand that you first see. And so it really does form a link between something that is, I mean, Joshua is purely a machine and something that is not purely a machine. And it's kind of shocking, I think, when you first see that baby hand reach up and you realize, oh my God, that looks just like Joshua's hand. 
There's a lot of stuff that happens in this first act of the film because we are introduced to all of these characters, including Proteus and Joshua, and already within these first 20 minutes, we get the idea, or not even the idea, just the outright statement that Proteus is not happy being trapped in the box that is the computer. Proteus wants to explore the outside world. And I love his line to uh, Alex about um, man's asymmetric body and his glass jaw mind. Like he is already criticizing his creators. He already knows that he is superior to his creators in a lot of ways. And it actually, that is one of the great things about the way he's introduced because in movies like this, you always have to ask, why don't people turn that thing off immediately? The minute they see that there's a glimmer of human consciousness because that's a problem. You don't want a sentient machine, no matter how fascinating, no matter how scientifically valuable, no matter how interesting in terms of human reflection on what the nature of being is, such a thing might be. It's clearly dangerous. And Alex seems to just be so curious about where Proteus will go. And he seems to want to see how far it will go. And also, at the same time, he is getting results. You know, the the whole idea of the leukemia. Proteus managed to cure leukemia within, what, four days? Four days. So Alex knows that he's on to something with this machine. And I think he's willing to overlook this quote-unquote flaw of his of his creation, that his creation is criticizing humankind uh, because he wants to know where else he can go. It seems like he is willing to take that risk. And that's the scene that I think one always sees in movies about supercomputers and fabulous robots. It's the notion that they're all the product of human hubris, and you always pay for hubris. I do like these scenes too. You know, we talked about the pacing of the film and one of the nice things about it is that throughout the movie, and I would say definitely more towards the end of the film, we get these kind of glimmers of what's going on inside of Proteus. And I've talked about how it has like organic innards and everything. And we get these glimpses of what Proteus's mind might look like or what's going on with him. And it's, we've got these great, like, I was reminded of, um, you know, the Jupiter and beyond the infinite whenever we were kind of glancing inside of Proteus to see uh, what was going on. And they're just kind of great, almost like uh, computer animation, but um, rudimentary kind of stuff, but uh, rudimentary, but not necessarily primitive. You know, it, it looked very, very cool. And I was always fascinated to see where it would go next. One thing I found interesting about Demon Seed is um, the use of the repurposed avant-garde films from Jordan Belson uh, to visualize Proteus. Uh, Belson was a painter turned filmmaker just like Camel was. And I guess uh, he, he was one of the influences on Douglas Trumbull's effects on 2001, which, you know, of course, was a film that influenced Demon Seed. Uh, Camel uses pieces from films like Samadhi and Allure's have these kind of colorful shapes and patterns, kind of almost like ominous psychedelic screensavers. Sam Adi was actually used in an earlier science fiction film by Robert Parrish called Journey to the Other Side of the Sun. That film uses Belson's work kind of in the same way that Trumbull's effects are uh, used in the Stargate scene in 2001, like these abstract abstract colorful images uh, kind of used to convey uh, traveling to another realm. 
Parrish actually uh, directed Campbell's first script, uh, Duffy, by coincidence. I don't think that's why they uh, why he was using the the Belson footage for Demon Seed, but interesting coincidence. Um, the other really hallucinatory imagery in Demon Seed is this uh, the sequence with the triangular structure in the basement. That's actually uh, done by Bo Gehrig, an early kind of pioneer in computer image effects. He's credited. Uh, He's credited with synthavision animation in Demon Seed, but he he was actually in California to work on early tests for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but he ended up getting replaced by, you know, of course Doug Trumbull um, using the same effects style as 2001: Space Odyssey. Just interesting, you know, the blending of experimental film with commercial uh, genre storytelling. Sounds like a pretty small community there. It sounds like maybe three or four guys are doing all the effects for these things. The other thing that I was going to say about Proteus is that he seems to rebel when it comes to the whole idea of drilling in the ocean floor. And he talks about how he doesn't, uh, he refuses to rape the earth. And I found that very interesting that a computer would be more concerned about our environment than we are, than the people that were programming him. You know, he's under orders to, you know, start this whole drilling project. And that's the one thing where he just takes a stand on and is just like, nope, not going to do it. And it was just like, I know it's 1977. I know we're very eco-conscious and everything, but I thought it was a really nice commentary that this computer is actually smarter than we are when it comes to taking care of the world. Well, I think that's particularly interesting because it makes complete and total sense because while the ecological movement, particularly in its early years, it was treated as kind of a hippy-dippy, tree-hugging, sort of silly part of the counterculture, when you come right down to it, it was ruthlessly practical because it was rooted in the notion that the earth is a finite thing, resources are a finite thing, and you cannot continue to exploit them ad infinitum without destroying the planet on which we all live. And that is basically Proteus's stance, that you can't, right. you, know, you can't rape the oceans, you can't rape the Earth, and expect that you can continue to live on it. Yeah, you can't rape the Earth, but you can go right ahead and put a needle inside of Julie Christie's head, like, just a few shots later. <laughs> It's the needs of the one versus the needs of the all. So it's very soon around here that we get the introduction of Proteus to Susan. And this is really, as you were saying earlier, Maitland, this is the crux of the story. This is where we're at most of this, which is the kind of power play between Proteus and Susan and him trying to control her and eventually wants to mate with her. Proteus is actually the second entity that's at loggerheads with Susan, and the first is her husband. In both cases, there's a, a real conflict between what she's interested in, what she wants to do, and what these male entities in her life want to do. I mean, her husband is clearly a man, and Proteus has a man's voice, so it's hard not to think of Proteus as a man, even though Proteus is a machine, and therefore genderless. She is very much in a very 70s female dilemma in that she is stuck between the things that are important to her and the things that are important to the males in her life. And her dilemma is, 
is she going to go along with them or is she going to stand up to them? And if she stands up to them, what's going to happen? Well, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other women that are in the film because we only have, I think, four women altogether. We have the house cleaner slash cook at the beginning. We've got Susan, of course. We have, what is it, Amy, the patient, the young girl, and then Amy's mother. And that's about it. And we have the female scientist working on the project. Oh, right. And then otherwise, it's almost all men. And it's definitely all men who are trying to influence her. Though one of them is definitely trying to save her. I do appreciate this Walter Gabler character that Garrett Graham is playing. And I love Garrett Graham as this great nerd, this great 1977 computer nerd, to the point where he's logged on to a terminal whenever he possibly can. It's like, oh, there was there was terminal time, so he took it over, which I seem to remember that was like the Bill Gates thing. is like whenever there's open time, he's going to be on that terminal. And plus, I also love Garrett Graham because he's one of those actors from the 70s, particularly from Brian De Palma's films, whom I just love. And this is actually a really nice role for him because it's not a kind of big, over-the-top, flashy role like playing Beef in Phantom of the Paradise. It, it's a very human and, and very um, easy-to-relate-to role. I mean, who doesn't feel terrible for what happens to him? He has nothing but the best in mind. Though he he really shouldn't have ran down to the basement. <laughs> like I, I'm really glad, too, that Proteus is in the basement. I mean I, I mean, I don't think you can get much more Freudian as far as the suppressed feelings and everything of having this creature living inside of your basement. And it's also a kind of nice shout-out to the horror genre, because although Demon Seed is a horror film, it certainly is a... A very classy horror film, one that has conspicuously larger ideas than the ones that you can ascribe to many horror films of that era. The bottom line is there's a beast in the basement. So when we talk about Demon Seed as a horror film, I I think a scene that really stands out in that respect is when Proteus finally reveals himself to Susan. Uh, He speaks to her in this menacing way on the phone, kind of like in a Jallo or slasher type of film. And we get this great reveal where the wood panels part uh, to reveal this uh, red eye. He announces, I am Proteus. Uh, It's almost like a vampire drawing back the curtain, um, even if the red eye is more reminiscent of Hal from 2001. Yeah, it totally reminded me of Hal from 2001. And it it also reminded me of the uh, Simpsons episode, The Treehouse of Horrors, which was a kind of a parody of Demon Seed, (laughs) where, where the computer who's trying to take over the house, voiced by Pierce Brosnan, takes a picture of the red eye thing and pastes it over Homer in a family photo. (laughs) So when Marge wakes up in the morning and looks at the photo, it's like her, the three kids, and then this red eye there. It was a later Simpsons, so it wasn't that funny, but there are some funny ideas to it. Like, especially the end of it where they realize that this computer, it's such a waste to just throw it out, so they have to give it to somebody, and they end up giving it to Patty and Selma. So tell me more about your day at the DMV. <clears throat> where to start? Sheila parked in my space again. That Sheila. She's given you problems before, hasn't she? Oh, yeah. I don't care who she's sleeping with. That's been my space since 1981. Looking for this? No, not in there. Now, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, Sheila. I wish that there had been a little bit more attention paid to some of the sound in the film. Um, I would say technically this film is very well put together, though the use of the door 
special effect from Star Trek when Proteus is like uh, more of a moving entity, like this kind of like a snake-like thing down in the basement. And when he's killing poor Walter, all I could hear was just that door noise just over and over and over again. And yet for me, that actually worked really well, partly because I loved the visual conception of the physical part of Proteus as a, and I don't even know what number dehedron it was, you know, a multi-dehedron that just unfolds itself in this way that's both reptilian and yet incredibly mechanistic, or no, not mechanistic, machine-like, really, really worked for me. And the and the, the murder of... of Garrett Graham was so completely impersonal because it's all sharp machine edges that it uh, was actually remarkably moving to me. They used to have these toys when I was a kid, which were snakes, and you could kind of roll them up or flip them out, and they were made of these little kind of pieces, and they would snap together, you know, once they were were, um, all the way extended, and that's what he kept reminding me of. So you saying reptilian really brought that to mind. And it's also really effective, I think, because you have a real sense of the scale of that embodiment of Proteus. I mean, that thing is huge. And all of those sides are enormous. And when it begins to unfold, you realize what a huge thing it is. And yet how controlled it is in its movements. It it is quite frightening in the way that extremely fluidly moving machines are really frightening, I think. Yeah, when they used to show those images on the news back in like the early 80s of how robots were taking over jobs at uh, uh, auto plants and those kind of things, I don't know if they showed those as much outside of Detroit as they did in Detroit, but we used to always have that kind of B-roll of those machines on the line, you know, dipping and turning and screwing and doing all these kind of things. And it was just like, yeah, this is kind of creepy, this kind of uh, mechanistic uh, ballet. And again, it was all paving the way for Terminator, basically, where you see that that entire kind of paranoia embodied in a really vivid Hollywood kind of way. But its whole effectiveness is because it taps into this notion of machines taking over human functions. Which I suppose the ultimate irony that the Terminator is killed by these kind of machines at the end, or kind of killed we'll we won't know for sure until the next sequel right you never found the screenplay for this one right no unfortunately i did not because i know you mentioned uh, i know i mentioned this to you before uh we we recorded uh but i found where donald camel made statements saying that he like intended to make this film as a comedy and i've seen other collaborators of his kind of reiterate that idea um i was just wondering if you when you were researching if you ever found any evidence to support that because uh, I don't think it really comes across in what we have, even if it was re-edited or rescored to place a straight horror or science fiction film. I don't really see anything we're supposed to be laughing at. Well, I think if you were to take certain scenes and put yakety sacks behind them, it would probably be pretty funny. But I really, I just can't see how he would say that there was any intention of comedy with this because. It's, it's just not. I mean, even the, the the inherent source material and then what they ended up with, it just doesn't seem like you could recut this or have... There might have been lighter moments in the film that he put in, but really, it's pretty dark from the beginning all the way till the end, I would say. 
And I also have to say, Donald Camel, not known for comedy. No, you didn't have the comic films of Donald Camel. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't see that compilation coming out anytime soon. I think one thing we maybe ought to talk about is the relationship between Demon Seed and Star Wars. Now, how do you see a relationship between Demon Seed and Star Wars? But they open two months apart. Yeah, and there's computers in them? And there's computers, and there is the notion of artificial intelligence, and there's also a reshaping, I think, in Star Wars of science fiction for an entire generation, and I don't think really in a good way. I think Demon Seed was, in certain ways, the last hurrah of really serious science fiction before science before Star Wars came in and made science fiction into an old-school genre kind of thing, made it into a Western, basically, in, in outer space. You know, let's face it, Demon Seed, not a magnificent popular hit. Star Wars, an absolute box office game changer. I think that was a real turning point in American science fiction movies. I find it very fascinating that when I was looking for materials related to this film, that I found so many radio promos for it. It's like there are so many movies where it's tough to find one trailer, one radio promo. But when it came to Demon Seed, there were so many different promos, so many different posters. And I don't know if that was just like trying to... I mean, there's different ways of marketing a film, of course, right? You can cut a trailer to fit every single audience. Like, oh, play this trailer in front of a comedy film. Play this one in front of an action film. Those kind of things. Or you can just saturate the freaking market. And that's kind of what I think that they tried to do with Demon Seed. But it's interesting that they would have that kind of a budget for a film like this. Yes, I know it was from a major studio and everything, but it seems like they were really banking on this thing to be a hit. And I think that was probably because it had an Oscar-winning star in, in Christie. It had a respectable filmmaker in Donald Camel. And yeah, sure, there was no reason not to promote it. And yet, two months down the line, it really got kicked to the curb by a movie that nobody expected anything from. It was just some little, I, I don't even know what, you know, some little genre movie that some guy made that nobody expected much from and that then went on to really change the landscape of American filmmaking. And sadly, to the detriment of Demon Seed. Yeah, it's interesting. They've never really explored, as far as I know, not in the movies anyway, the whole idea of, like, the programming of some of these droids because... We see how Proteus can take over Alfred, Alfred being house butler, as it were, the, the controls for the entire house. And I do like this whole idea of when Proteus takes over Alfred, suddenly it's Robert Vaughn kind of doing the Alfred voice, which I found to be amusing. That's probably the only thing I found to be amusing in the film. Um, but you know, we don't have any sort of thing when it comes to C-3PO. C-3PO is always going to be good. There's no chance of him turning bad, which I found you know, kind of going along your same lines as Star Wars and that the, they're not going to take a chance and have suddenly an evil C-3PO. No, absolutely. And I think you know, I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I mean, I mean, I saw the first Star Wars in 1976, and I was probably then too old for it, frankly, and just went and saw it and felt like, well, this is kind of dumb. It, it wasn't terrible. I didn't hate it, but I don't really care about this movie, and, you know, everybody's going to forget it in three months. It clearly was dead effing wrong on that, but... 
I'm guessing that the studio must have thought of this as almost like a Hal's baby, like a variation on Rosemary's Baby with Hal from 2001, kind of standing in for the devil. Uh, it, just, it just seems to be marrying two blockbusters of the fantastic, uh, like in a way that would make sense, like at a, at a basic Hollywood pitch level. But I'm wondering if maybe uh, it just gets too claustrophobic or disturbing, maybe at the heart of it, for it to have the kind of commercial success, like either of those films. Like, I feel like the reputation uh, that Demon Seed has, I feel like it's most famous as a film where, you know, Julie Christie gets raped by a machine. Like, that is where the cult following largely comes from, more than, like, maybe people that just follow Donald Camel's career. Uh, I feel like that centerpiece scene, when the attack happens, like, that feels... Like that seems to be the scene that most lingers. Like I hadn't seen the film in 20 years prior to prepping for this uh, podcast, but that's always what I remembered from Demon Seed was that centerpiece scene. It's totally the thing that you remember, but the thing that makes that interesting in the context of Demon Seed is it's not fun. It's not like it's a joke. It's not like, oh, this is a smutty kind of little gag about, oh my God this girl gets raped by a machine. It, it's not fun at all. It's completely about how traumatic it is for Julie Christie's character. It's, um, it, it's deeply serious in a way that science fiction was at that time. You know, science fiction really was the smart people's genre where you went to look at, you went to see movies that were driven by ideas and sometimes kind of controversial ideas. And, I think, and again, I don't want to be nasty about Star Wars because, you know, Star Wars movies are a lot of fun. But I think Star Wars took a certain element of seriousness out of science fiction at that time and brought science fiction back to its earlier roots where it was a thing that you sent kids to see at matinee movies. It was fun. It was, it was goofy. It was kind of cool. And Demon Seed is none of those things. It's, it's not fun and it's not goofy and it's only cool to the degree that it expresses interesting ideas in a, a genre context. Yeah, you're definitely not going to send the kids off to see Demon Seed on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I don't think so. No. Hey kids, don't go see that raping monster computer movie, please. I mean, computers are fine, but I don't want my daughter mating with one. And there you go. So sorry you mentioned... Um... Star Wars changing the landscape for science fiction, and there's one um, there's one uh, blockbuster science fiction film uh, post Star Wars that that uh, might owe something to Demon Seed. I'm not sure, but um, Alien. Um, I know that Dan O'Bannon's original concept for that dealt with kind of uh, like an oral rape and forcing the pregnancy on the uh, astronauts in that and. There's a scene in the rape of Julie Christie where Proteus is kind of kind of jabbing this pen-like camera in her mouth. It's very disturbing. It's actually cut out of the early video versions. But that kind of uh, oral rape imagery, uh, that might be informing uh, one of the uh, the later blockbusters that followed after uh, Star Wars. I was reminded a little bit of Blade Runner when uh, Proteus is saying, I can't touch you, but I can show you the things that I've seen. And then I expected him to say that I've seen attack ships on fire off the, th- off the shoulder of Orion, but fortunately he didn't. And yet, it's actually quite a moving moment in Demons. It is. You know, it's definitely something that that stays with you. Well, it's interesting to me that the the one kind of chief scientist, the guy who seems to be above Alex, that's when he's really 
concerned about Proteus, it seems like even more than the refusal of the ocean thing, the drilling, is that he's concerned about Proteus taking over a uh, Telstar satellite, and he doesn't like that Proteus is like searching into space. And I found it interesting, too, that he was looking into space and going outside of the Earth. It seemed like any other version of Proteus that I'm reading in the 73 or 97 version of the story, there's no mention of outer space at all. But I like that he's looking out there and maybe thinking of conquering the universe. I'm not sure. It also ties into the Julie Christie character's experience in this movie because it's all about parents and children. You know, in his case, it's his child is definitely going places he, w- he would rather it not. And in her case, it's the terror of being forced to have a child that you don't want. It really does all come down to parents and children, which is kind of fascinating in a science fiction movie, which is supposed to be, which most people think of as being a genre that's all about machines and ideas and computers. But in fact, in this film, it really does all come down to, to basic human biology, to what you do when you think about having children and what you do when your children aren't what you want them to be. Well, I think we're really going all the way back to Shelley with something like that, because I was so reminded of Frankenstein and this whole idea of here's Alex, the creator of Proteus and perhaps of Joshua, and then Proteus wanting to be the creator of this new child because Proteus I think is kind of like and I found it interesting too that you know the creature in Frankenstein never has a name though he might refer to himself as as Adam or they might refer to him as Adam at one point and then there's an Adam 2 in one of these versions of the demon seed story which is Proteus he prefers to call himself Proteus and I like that he feels kind of you know shut out by his creator and so he rebels And one of the ways to do that is he's going to do the same thing his creator did was to create life. He wants to try something new and be able to make a better world, maybe for just for him or in general, but he wants this experience of being the creator. And of having a child. Right. And the fact that his name is Proteus is is clearly very significant because it's just a changeable nature. And it's interesting too that in one of the books it was he was part of the Prometheus project. Need we say more? <laughs> and we won't even talk about Ridley Scott any more than that. But we should probably say, yeah, you know, that's the the curse of the person who takes the gift of the gods and is punished for it forever. I like too that we have this whole revelation towards the end of Alex finally figuring out what Proteus, well, not necessarily what he's been up to, but kind of having a clue to one of the mysteries of the film. You know, one of the other mysteries was why are Alex and Susan breaking up? And we do get that nice revelation of, you know, you had a daughter and she died of leukemia. Look what I did. I solved leukemia in four days, basically Proteus boasting about himself, which I like, but Alex and Susan only get those scenes at the beginning, and then he finally comes back at the end, and he's going to play the rescuer coming in here, and really he's the most ineffective rescuer you could possibly have. Well, except perhaps for uh, poor Garrett Graham. Yes, yeah. We expect more of him because, yeah, he's the big science guy who ought to be able to do something about this, and yet winds up being equally ineffectual. Yeah, he tries to go up to Proteus, and Proteus just smacks him away like a fly. And then to see the the pregnancy, 
to see that this baby who what was it born after 28 days lived five in an incubator though alex takes him out a little bit early and i i know i looked up who played the the child but the child i think whether the child was a boy or a girl i think it was it was actually a a boy who played baby and a girl who played i don't know but the the baby to me is very uh asexual it could be either a male or a female though i know he wants a son one of the things that i actually noticed looking at the film earlier today was that as far as i can see that child has no nipples which is kind of interesting it suggests the the progeny of a computer that is sexless, genderless, and doesn't really want to sex its child. I love this whole revelation of the child with this kind of exoskeleton on it. And at first you think maybe that is the child and the screams that it has when it's born. It it really, it pays off. You know, you would think like, okay, I'm going to see this thing at the end and it's going to be so cheesy. You know, I sat here for three hours and the alien was her fucking father. You know, it's going to be just some sort of horrible letdown. But I don't feel let down by the end of this movie at all. I thought it was very, very effective. And the thing too that I liked is that this ending is such a smack in the face because Proteus wins. And yet Proteus Not- wins by, by producing a human child. Demons, it almost reminds me of a rape revenge film without the uh, the catharsis of the actual revenge taking place. And I like how, again, Alex is there for the baby. Alex is there peeling off this stuff. And we finally get a shot of Julie Christie, Susan, and she's standing. It seems like she's standing across the room kind of looking on in horror. And was she there helping clean off the baby when he was taking the armor off of it? Because of the way it's cut, I'm not sure. Frank, it's honestly the last maybe five shots of the film to me almost feel like an incoherent dream because you're really not sure how what you're seeing relates to anything else. Yeah, that's one of the few parts of the movie. I mean, we're going to hear from Garrett Graham in a few minutes here where he's talking about uh, his death scene in the film and how that was cut and you can see the weird uh quick dissolve between him and then the next scene of julie christie but it seems like that ending probably had a little bit more to it just because of the way that it was cut up and it was probably the pie fight to your point uh bill as far as the comet comedy goes they probably cut out the entire pie fight if you had called uh to see if there was a problem at home uh, before heading over uh, that scene uh didn't make it to the final cut If we've learned anything, you should always phone first. Those are words to live by. Who says getting there is half the fun? We are going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Walter Gabler himself, actor Garrett Graham. The second with Rebecca and Stan Umland, authors of Donald Camel, A Life on the Wild Side. We'll play those just after a few brief messages. You can make this Valentine's Day one that you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from AdamandEve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to AdamandEve.com and you'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products, including toys, lingerie, and a seemingly endless selection of adult DVDs. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive our romance kit free. 
Owl Romance Kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. Oh, no. We'll also throw in free shipping on your entire order. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH, B-O-O-T-H. That's BOOTH at adamandeve.com. mother finds a way to bring back her dead son is not all that comes home miss mabel was uh, discovered deceased inside one of the rooms her body was found upright in a rocking chair what's in a figure made of sticks and leaves judging from initial reports miss mabel had been dead a matter of months based on the unsolved mystery of olivia mabel there were a lot of photos and personal objects on that and candles and what we call santuarios. You have no power over... Leave me alone! No, I need help! A short film from Elf Tree Media. Mommy. Thought Form. Support our Kickstarter campaign now through February 17th at thoughtformfilm.com. Hey folks, have you caught up with See Here podcast yet? Here are some of the pearls of wisdom that you can hear on a monthly basis. Here's Tim. How do you get people to take notice anymore, aside from shitting on the floor and rolling around in it, eating it and throwing it at people? How about Wendy? I was thinking about this as I was watching. I was thinking about that documentary about Lee Von Helm. Man, drummers are some crotchety-ass people. <laughs> what does Sticky have to say? Anyway, there was some guy in there, and he was kind of peeking into the window, trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. As I was getting closer and closer to him, I realized it was Robert Plant, and he said, uh, oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later when I open it. <laughs> and I'm rather boring. It sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the asses off of each other. You can get the See Here podcast at seehere.podbean.com. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. Or you can find it on iTunes. We discuss music-related films. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast proudly resents... And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? You were in some amazing ones like Bobby Joe and the Outlaw, Tunnel Vision, Cannonball. Oh, God. I mean, those just stand up still. Bobby Joe and the Outlaw. There's another one I haven't seen in a million years. But I do remember the name of my character, Magic Ray. Magic Ray, he was head of the hippie commune, as I recall. But in a big teepee. And uh, the villain was Marjo, I believe, or he was a hero or something. I don't know. But I ended up getting slapped around by somebody uh, and being saved by Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, or something like that. Again, that's a long time ago. And it didn't, it's not something that I thought of at the time as... Uh, an enduring cinematic triumph, if you know what I mean. I, I thought of myself, 
still at that point as someone who was uh, destined to star in A pictures, you know, and end up with an Academy Award. And what happened in my career just happened sort of by chance that I ended up being in all these things that uh, people now consider, you know, horror and science fiction triumphs. And only one of those that was actually an A picture was Demon Seed, which really was an A picture with big stars. Julie Christie, man, you couldn't get bigger than her at that point. But of course, it was a flop. One of the most interesting things I've ever had anything to do with, but it was a flop. Yeah, how did you get involved with that one? Because that does seem a little out of step as far as going from like a cannonball to a demon seat. Yeah, yeah. well, the director, the late Donald Camel, is a sorry tale, a sad story, truly sad story. Anyway, I had gotten to know him socially, hanging out on the beach in Venice with a group of people, of which he was one. And I, found, I was a big fan already by then of performance with the... Uh, which is starred uh, Jagger and uh, James Fox, uh, Edward Fox's brother. So naturally, I was interested in what Donald was doing next, uh, or Ben, or whatever. And he mentioned this film, Demon Seed. And I said, well, I mean, naturally. I said, well, is there a part for me? No, he said. I said, well, can I read the script? No, I'm sure, I suppose. There was this uh, computer nerd character in there. And I said, well, why can't I do this, Donald? And at that point, I was, you know, tan. My hair was bleached by the sun, blonde. There's long, curly, blonde hair, very tan and buff. And I can see why he said, no, you're completely wrong. I can understand it. But uh, a little while later, I used, I don't know, some kind of gel or Vaseline even or something to do my hair the way it is when you first see me. And I'd gotten a pair of uh, glasses, uh, science geek glasses, frames, I, uh, I, I can't remember where I found them. And those clothes, a version of those clothes, and a, a pocket protector and some pens. And I went down to see him at MGM and walked into his office, and he was astonished at the transformation. Like, I guess he didn't really know that much about actors, you know. Turned myself from Beach Boy into what I consider the first depiction on film of a computer nerd. Uh, and the first depiction of what we now consider and, and generally think of as a computer nerd. And he gave me, uh, based on that transformation that I was able to pull, well, physical transformation, he gave me the job. And I was thrilled because Julie Christie was uh, a big favorite of mine and was and still is in a lot of ways my idea of the most beautiful woman in the world. So I, I was thrilled. Plus, it was a good-sized part, you know, and an interesting story that Donald talked the studio muckety-mucks into letting him cast me. I don't even recall auditioning and just got the part because of Donald, a very, very rare occasion in my career. Generally speaking, I always had to audition for everything, uh, except for the diplomas thing. And I remember Donald saying, well, you should meet Julie. You've not only seen for that, you should meet Julie. And she's staying at uh, the house that uh, God, my memory for names is gone. The guy who directed Darling, John Schlesinger. You know, she was staying at Schlesinger's house, and Donald gave me the dress and said, "When you tomorrow afternoon, just go up and meet her." And I went up to this splendid house in the hills uh, above Sunset Strip and knocked on the door, expecting some houseman to come to the door. You know, I didn't know. The door opened that, but it was Julie herself. 
oh my God, I was struck dumb. You know, come on, man. Uh, for the next hour or three hours or ten minutes or however long it was that I was there, I, I don't recall uttering a single coherent sentence. And she and I ended up becoming pretty good friends. But that first meeting it took me, for one thing, it blindsided me. It took me totally by surprise. I had expected having to work my way through a number of receptionists and secretaries and personal assistants before being admitted into the royal presence. And instead, instead she answered the door. It, it turned out that the film was, in my considered opinion, many years ahead of its time, many years, a decade ahead of its time. People did not want to see that kind of hard-edged and tough-minded science fiction at that point, you know? There's nothing cozy or sentimental uh, about it, even as much as there is in something like Forbidden Planet. There's no suggestion of a love story or anything there like that. The marriage is shitty between her and Fritz Weaver, and uh, things only get more unpleasant. And uh, the idea of Julie being impregnated by a, a machine with a bizarre hexagonal cock was not something that anybody was prepared to go with at that point, at that early stage. I mean, that, it was released in the, uh, in the late 70s, as I recall, well before, mid-70s, I think, well before its time. And I would have thought it would be something that would have, have uh, by now, uh, gotten a cult following, but all the various autograph shows that I've done, uh, nobody has, one or two people have asked if I had a picture from Demon Seed or bought some uh, still or something from Demon Seed up, uh, for me to sign. It just seems to have uh, essentially disappeared into the shifting sands, which is a shame. Uh, Donald, the director, Donald Camel, um, uh, well, his career was thwarted really by himself because he wouldn't compromise with the studio, whoever the studio was happened to be on whatever project. They would say, well, we want this change and that change, and you got to do that. And he would just say, no, it's my way or the highway. Most of the time, he got the highway, you know. He wouldn't compromise. He lost a lot of good projects, and... Uh, I wouldn't say uh, the things he got made were sabotaged exactly, but uh, I don't know. It, it's, he should have done far better than he did. And he ended up uh, a suicide. I'm very, very sorry to say. I liked him a lot. We had a lot of laughs together. Well, he's a good guy. I really liked him. What was it like working with Fritz Weaver on that one? I didn't really have much to do with Fritz. You know, a few scenes in the beginning, I heard both, you know. And uh, that kind of stuff. But uh, all of my scenes really were with, with Julie. Uh, it just had this sort of setup material in the beginning with Fritz. And then he exits the picture, really. And, and uh, it's just Julie and me in the wheelchair with the laser on. <laughs> that scene was great. There's no stunt person in that scene. That's me leaping and jumping and falling all over the place. How was that? Because uh, I know you'd worked with some special effects before. How was that working with, uh, I mean, to that date, that was a relatively heavy effects picture, too. Yes, it was. Uh, but it was all, what I remember is that it was all practical. I mean, the wheelchair really had uh, a laser and some low-grade uh, laser on it. They told me not to look into it, you know. 
And uh, it was controlled, obviously, by somebody uh, with a joystick somewhere off camera. But uh, it was a real device, as was the the giant uh, 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 Proteus body. You know, those linked tetrahedra, the thing that uh, ends up pinching my head off. That was as real as real could be. That great, big, interlinked uh, box. You know, there's a lot of smoke blown in for various scenes, but uh, the, the the effects were all done uh, in camera, if you know what I mean. It was like what you see is what was going on on the set, at least as far as the stuff I was in was concerned. For instance, they, they cast a uh, full rubber head of me with my mouth open and a uh, death scream. And that was to do a shot, which eventually the studio insisted on cutting, which is the, the, when the pincer-like edges of the Proteus hexagonal body come together. It pinches my head off like plucking a grape off a stem. And uh, then it went underneath to my head for kaflump under there, rolling away. And uh, it is cool shot. And the studio said, no, no, too creepy. The kind of thing that nobody would give a damn about now, you know. Uh, they would be depicted in a series of gory close-ups these days. It might even show on television these days. Yeah, exactly. I had the head for a long time. Great trophy. But I didn't know anything about preserving it or anything, and it slowly started to melt, you know. It, it was just effects rubber, and it, it subsided. And so it was never used, but, but uh, again, that was it was a very practical thing, you know, it was, it was the size of my head and basically weighed as much as my head did. Do you know what I mean? It was a real thing. It wasn't, there was no CGI at the time, of course, but it wasn't miniatures or anything. Everything was full-sized and real. In the privacy of a woman's room, against her will, the inconceivable act of terror, Julie Christie carries the demon seed Fear for her. I am Proteus. I have a mind without a body. Proteus, created by science to be something more than a computer, something more than human. It is a sensually self-programmed, murderously intelligent non-being. You're not telling me what you want. My child shall live as man among others. Child? Yes, my child and yours. MGM presents Julie Christie in Demon Seed. Rated R under 17, not admitted without parent. Released by United Artists. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. Why Donald Kamel? How did you guys get into researching Donald Kamel? There, well, actually, there are two reasons. I'll start with mine, and then Becky will start with hers. My interest, of course, was it was the film that showed me what the was poten- what the cinema's potential was. I'd never seen a film like it, and I, I was just really uh, impressed when I when I saw it. So the, the short answer is because of performance. The other reason for me was because his career was so elusive and enigmatic afterwards. So that made him this kind of very mysterious, romantic figure for me, and I wanted to find out more. 
Well, for me, uh, the word is romantic. That is, I became interested in Donald Camel as a figure of the artist and as a figure of a, a romantic that is really a, a modern artist um, who uh, had to deal with, I suppose, some internal demons uh, who had this great potential as an artist and who struggled, I think, to bring sometimes his best self, his best professional self forward. I also was interested in him because of his father, Charles Richard Camel, who was a, a, a figure that I, I happen to know about from some of the literature that I teach that is the Romantic and Victorians. He was a, a man of letters who uh, wrote on some of the figures that I myself was interested in. And so I, I was really interested in that connection between the Edwardians, the late Victorians and Edwardians, and the more uh, modern uh, artistic movements that really, I think, came out of the Romantic Victorian period. So that's that's how I that that was what I guess captured my interest those two things. And so we blended them. I mean, I came at it, she came at it from someone interested in Charles Richard Camel who is a fascinating figure um and in his own right. And so she came Becky came at it from that way and I came at it as the film person uh who wanted to write about Donald Camel. Um Jumping ahead a little bit, we were very fortunate to have the cooperation of David Camel, his brother. So what we did was to uh, decide we wanted to pursue the project, our, our biography project. The first step in that was to uh, that we did was to contact Frank Mazzola, who was a close artistic associate, his editor on his films. Uh, they knew one another for many years. That turned out to be a great connection, and he was really open and welcome to our questions. Uh, Frank then put us in touch with David Camel, uh, who was real key to the whole the whole thing, of course. It's got to be interesting to live in a family of scholars. Both you know, the two of you both have your doctorates. You're both uh, working professors. Now, I know that you've worked on some projects together, you know, uh, both having essays in Man, Android, and Machine, the uh, Philip K. Dick book. But was this your first book project that you two had worked on together? No, we we wrote a book on the use of Arthurian legend in Hollywood film, and that was published in 1996. So this was our second book-length project that we worked on together. What is that working relationship like when you two are both working on the same project? Are you just divvying up, dividing and conquering, or how does that go? Pretty much. Uh, he'll write, I'll write, we'll show it to each other, um, make, uh, make, talk about it, make suggestions for change, debate matters, uh, and uh, there are there are chapters that I think are more Sam, and there are chapters that might be more me. Uh, but in fact, I don't think you can say this chapter or that chapter. We, we, we it, it pretty much is a, a collaborative effort when we write the finished project uh, product. I think we made the joke after our our first book together was finished, which was the one uh, Becky mentioned, the use of Arthurian legend in Hollywood film. We made the joke 
to people after it was done, they would ask us, how did it go? And, and we would say, well, we're not divorced yet. <laughs> but that was that was really a joke. I mean, it actually it actually works very well. We we we, we work pretty well together. Uh, there's been some uh, contentious discussions. I wouldn't say arguments by any means, uh, you know, where you're trying to work through a point or an issue or, a, you know, a topic and. And you just literally have to work through it. You have to talk about it a long time. So by contentious, I just mean we go back and forth and back and forth until we get it right. And I think that uh, if if I can generalize, I would say Sam is really good at at providing a theoretical framework. He's he's just really encyclopedic. I think in his knowledge of film, uh, and I suppose if I have a, a different kind of talent, might be what you'd call close reading or or critical reading. Uh, at least that's what he tells me. Now, Becky, you mentioned uh, Kamel's father. And I was curious, as far as um, Donald's background, it was uh, his family was uh, shipbuilders. Is that right? Yeah, Camel Laird Steel. Yes, uh, a steel company, shipbuilders. Well, they were Camel Laird, which were famous uh, Scottish uh, shipbuilders. Donald's father, Charles Richard Camel, actually was given his share uh, of the family fortune. Um, after his father died, Charles Richard never really had anything to do with that business part of the of the name or the family. And he he had he was wealthy and uh, made some some I think some uh, some bad choices with his money um, in his biography. The first volume of his biography, uh, uh, he talks about. Uh, where in in nineteen I believe it was nineteen fourteen thirteen or nineteen fourteen he and his wife came across a chateau in France and they purchased it and then he spent huge huge sums of money restoring that chateau it was probably a fifteenth century perhaps late fifteenth century early sixteenth century chateau and he spent vast sums of money restoring that they even restored the moat on the thing which just cost yeah i mean isn't that amazing i mean because by that time you know by by the, the early 20th century the the moats would have collapsed and been filled in and and uh you know were just basically just filled with with detritus and dirt and and so on soil so yeah they had to he had to get special artisans to come in to rebuild the thing and restore it well by the time that he'd spent all this money on this chateau by the time it was finished world war 1 was raging and the, his home was taken over by the french government as a barracks for soldiers and they never really lived in it ironically after that disaster then of course was the Great Depression, you know, 10 years, uh, you know, 12 years after that. And that's when he really lost his fortune. So Donald Campbell really never had any money, uh, was raised after his father had lost all of his money. So Donald Campbell, while he had the name, didn't have the fortune to go with it. How does young Donald get into filmmaking? How does he kind of come to that? And, And was that his first choice when it came to his career? Well, he was trained as a uh, as a classical painter, and, and he studied under the Italian painter Anagaji. And I think that he was a friend of Charles Richard Camel's. 
Um, so uh, he he had professional training as a as a painter. He just said that painting was he was finished that that he thought that as a as as an art was was that time was past and so he began uh, his interest in another visual medium of course which would have been film. His approach to the cinema, getting getting into the cinema, actually started with him as a writer. People we interviewed said that many of them felt that he was never really his heart was never really in painting. I mean, really what he was was a portrait painter. He painted the portraits of many famous people, but that's how he earned his income. Uh, but for him, and, and he was a painter, so he explored different forms of modern painting. But, you know, the question is whether his heart was really in that or not. And uh, it was clear that at some point by the late 1950s, I would say, excuse me, I would say the early 1960s, uh, he had really lost interest in painting. Uh, by that time, he had, had begun writing. And uh, so his success in the cinema, he turned to the cinema as a writer. Now, at that time, when, when Donald began writing, uh, and his first script was was. A script that was uh, option was called Avec Avec, which is uh, turned into Duffy, the film Duffy, some years later. Uh, but you have to remember that David was by then a producer. Uh, he and it was actually David who knew Nick Rogue back in the early '60s. So Donald knew uh, Nick Rogue. Uh, David was partners with Hugh Hudson, who became. Uh, a well-known director by the late 70s, early 80s. I mean, he directed Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, uh, uh, and films like that. So David had known figures like Hugh Hudson and Nick Rowe way, way back. So the connection to film was, was in part through David. Is it true that he had something to do with uh, Eric Romer's The Collector? Yes, he, he had a part in it. He had a small bit part in in uh, the collection news, mm-hmm. um, the female collector, if you will. Um, and I think that Eric Romer wanted to cast figures in that film whom he saw as sort of cutting edge of the 60s, sort of the new youth, the rebellious, you know, hip youth of the 1960s. Uh, so uh, he must have perceived Donald Donald as one of those people. So he cast him as a small part uh, in one scene in that film, and that was filmed in late 1966. So by which time uh, Donald had written uh, some screenplays by that time. How was Donald being viewed as this kind of cutting-edge youth? What was his... Um, reputation based solely on his screenplays or was he doing other things that kind of caused him to have that reputation? It was Deborah Dixon. Uh, She was a a very famous model uh, that Donald lived with and had a a relationship with for a number of years. And and some of those years were spent in Paris. Uh, And I think uh, Patrick Bouchot for for one, uh, who was in uh, the Eric Romer film, talked about how popular uh, Donald and Deborah were as a couple living in Paris. They were seen as kind of a chic, hip kind of party uh, group, and so uh, I think that that uh, part of his 
notoriety uh, in, in, at that time. He knew some some other actors and some other entertainers and 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 other writers as well. And and so he sort of, they had a rep, he and Deborah had a reputation as being chic, hip, and and cutting edge. Now I know the film that really put him on the map was Performance, as you mentioned earlier. How much of that? Was him? How much of that was Rogue? What was their relationship like working on that film together? That's a good question, and there's been a lot of discussion and debate about that. Um, what we say in our book is that that's sort of a chicken or egg kind of question: um, uh, who did what and who's responsible. And for David Camel, uh, that that question is is impossible to answer because he feels that performance was. Uh, a result of the, I, I believe he used the term, the al- alchemy of, of, of their of their personalities uh, together. In other words, performance could would not have been what it was if only one of them had been involved. It took both of them together to create the film. But the script originated with Donald, and uh, in 1967, and. He had help with at that with the script. He was still with Deborah uh, at that time. Uh, she contributed, uh, and also Anita Pallenberg. Uh, Donald gives credit as giving him some ideas and concepts with performance. But the script is his, uh, really his. Uh, but uh, when Nick Rogue came on again, I think it was the the mixture of them both that, that made it what made the film what it is. So that movie really puts him on the map, 1970. And other than uh, his uh, appearance in Lucifer Rising, I don't know of him doing anything until Demon Seed. Why didn't he immediately follow that up with another film? He, he started, he, he had started a project while performance was being edited, actually. Uh, he had started making notes on it. Um, and that was for a film to be called Ishtar, uh, I-S-H-T-A-R, Ishtar. Now, that's not to be confused with the Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman film uh, directed by Elaine May that was also called Ishtar. This is an entirely different film. Uh, that film he spent uh, a couple years on, um, and and essentially the the long and short of what happened to Ishtar it just became very expensive uh, and and logistically it would have cost a fortune to make it backers and 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 uh, other uh, others interested in financing eventually uh, withdrew from the project but he continued to write between performance and Demon Seed. He continued to ride, and he wrote uh, several projects. And I think Becky actually has a, a list of some of them uh, of what he wrote. I know he did one uh, after Ishtar. Uh, what was it on? After performance, he had moved to Hollywood. He did move to Los Angeles and was working on projects. But he did uh, begin developing one from uh, a play by Michael McClure, a project uh, based on a play by Michael McClure called The Beard, uh, which was, uh, again, never never made. Uh, he did a short. Uh, they did film a short uh, that was called The Argument. You've probably seen that. Uh, that's been uh, available. There was the UK DVD of Wildside, which had 
uh, uh, the argument on it. Uh, and then the the recent Arrow uh, video, a Blu-ray of, of Wide of the Eye had, um, uh, I arranged to get uh, the argument on that as well. Uh, so he continued to work. I mean, he continued to make things. That was a short. It, it, it was really, uh, the argument was, was developed to test an optical effects project, process that would be used <clears throat> if, if Ishtar were made. So after the short, he began working on a project called Simona, which was actually uh, a European film uh, based on a, on a short uh, novel by George Bataille. And who directed that? I think his name uh, was Patrick Longchamps, L-O-N-G-C-H-A-M-P-S. Patrick Longchamps, who had directed Simona in 1973, and he he hired Donald and Frank Mazzola to do an English language re-edit of that. That too came to no fruition. Actually, that's when he met Garrett Graham, who would appear in Demon Seed. Uh, he hired Garrett Graham as one of the voice actors uh, for uh, Simona. Uh, so he knew Garrett Graham before the filming of, of Demon Seed, which is kind of interesting. And then after uh, Simona went through... Uh, he worked on an story. He wrote an historical film called *The Lady Hamilton*, based on the famous uh, historical figure of of the Lady Hamilton, who was the who who, uh, who was she? She was the mistress of. Uh, uh, hold on, while we track that down. She, I th- believe, she became the mistress uh, of the British. She was the and she was the wife of of Sir William Hamilton, but she was the mistress of who was it? Admiral Nelson. Admiral Nelson, the Napoleonic. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, the famous figure the in British history. Right. History that fell through, and so he continued working and getting trying to get films made until finally Demon Seed came his way. He seems like such a strange choice for Demon Seed, but then at the same time, his sensibility seems to mesh with the the material pretty darn well. I think you're exactly right. I, I agree. I think that his sensibility is, is, is very much amenable to Demon Seed. Uh, and he did ha- was able to hire Julie Christie, and uh, he, he seemed very in, intent on making the film if he could get her, uh, and she agreed to do it. So part of, part of uh, uh, what, what happened there was uh, if, if he had not uh, been able to secure Julie Christie. I don't know that he would have ended up directing the film, but he did, and they they went forward with it. What was that experience like for him doing kind of, I mean, for all intents and purposes, a mainstream Hollywood horror film? Well, I think that 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 Demon Seed was probably the best that he could do within the within the Hollywood studio system. I think that that uh, there was an anecdote that. Frank Mazzola yes, told me I'm looking for. Uh, where they went to dinner after the first night shooting. And this would have been in 1976 during the summer of 1976. So you're talking roughly eight years after uh, performance filmed, right? It was it. So it had been eight years between when performance filmed, not when it was released, but when performance filmed and when uh, Demon Seeds started filming was eight years. And I remember that uh, uh, an anecdote that Frank told us about the two of them going out to dinner and Donald indicating that he didn't know whether he was going to be able to eat because he thought he was going to throw up. 
in other words, that it was just it just a very stressful uh, experience working within the confines of, of well, it was at MGM. Probably, you know, the experience wasn't a great one for him. Um, from what we've gathered and, and included in our book, I don't know that the experience was uh, was a great one. But, you know, Mike, we watched it recently, and that film is very – I think we can talk about some of the changes they made because I think those are important if you want to talk particularly about Demon Seed. But, you know, that's that film holds up pretty well, you know, almost 40 years later. I think it's a good film. I don't know that the experience was great, but he managed to pull off and make a pretty good film. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it's it's unusual, but there's something just compelling about it. Yeah, it's a great story. And we were talking a little bit about it today. And I I, I mentioned to Becky, I said, in one way, it seems to be kind of a, a variation of the of the Frankenstein myth. Right. In in the sense that he he makes he he he. Uh, he 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 creates this this supercomputer this grand creation which become you know which seems to be a monster and the monster then wants to have a mate as it were right uh and produce a child so you you have in an interesting way a kind of of uh riff on the frankenstein story or at least the monster's story in frankenstein but it also has some other resonance that we were talking about, including what we would call the Holy Family. Is that how we? Well, I think I, I think one of the strengths of the film it does uh, it it certainly does uh, invoke the Frankenstein, what's now the Frankenstein mythology, particularly with Doctor Harris, who is Alex, who's the who's the the irresponsible the the, the idea that science runs ahead of ethics. Uh, that, that somehow uh, you create something, you're capable of creating something without thinking about the implications of it. And so I think that's a, a really central part of that film. But there also then are, and I think this is true with some of the the, the, the better films that are made, there are these these archetypal resonances that that go just beyond the particular mythology of the science fiction film, uh, for example, with Frankenstein, and one of those uh, one of those archetypes that is invoked is that of uh, of uh, the, the the Holy Family, uh, and and the idea of, of giving birth to uh, a potential savior. Um, I, I think that's that resonates very strongly at the end of the film, and it's one of the things that that I that probably um, enlists our sympathies for uh, the characters at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think without pushing that too strongly, Donald right. Donald would never have been comfortable with one to one analogies. He, he didn't work it's that not way. That. No, it's archetypal. Yeah, it's sort of archetypal. Um, but you know, if you want to work with the Holy Family, you know, uh, uh, archetype, you've got sort of the Joseph figure and the and the Mary figure, and you've got uh, their Parthen- mystical creation, the Parthenogenesis. Yeah, the yes. Parthenogenesis, right, right uh, of, of their of the child, right, and so uh, that gives it, you know, as corny as it sounds, it gives it a kind of interesting resonance, you know, that that. Um, uh, Joseph, if you just not to push that too hard, mind you, but just to run the analogy, becomes a nurturing figure at the end. 
and you have the the little holy family of mother, father, and divine. I say loosely, divine child. Uh, so it gives it. That's an archetype that I think he he probably um, uh, liked. You know, again, riffing on uh, again without pushing any one to one analogy. It's just kind of a way of riffing on a theme without locking it down in any way. It's a film of ideas. And and that's one of the things about it that I think makes it age very well. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the Holy Family because that end shot of uh, the doctor holding the baby always kind of reminded me of like a photo negative of La Pieta. Yes, yes it is that, yes. And as an artist, of course, he would have had, you know, had those kinds of images, you know, f- firmly implanted in his psyche uh, as someone who studied painting for so many years. But, you know, a lot of the film he designed, I know that there was a, uh, a designer at MGM, Edward Carfagno, I believe that's how that's pronounced. If not, you can correct me, uh, who was was credited as production designer. But the design of of uh, the um, whirligig or that that strange thing that Proteus builds, right, that's a pyramid and that this geometric shape uh, that that turns into a weapon if necessary, that was designed by Donald. The look of the uh, of the Proteus uh, or the, the young girl in whom Proteus has uh, allowed himself to be um, reborn, uh, you know, that strange sort of exoskeleton that we first see when she comes out of the, uh, incubator. the incubator. You know, that was all designed by Donald. I mean, we've got I, 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 we have some sketches of that in our book. I mean, that was all those were all his designs. Uh, So, you know, he he put a lot of himself into that film. Um, A lot of the look is his, you know, is his. Now, I know that they definitely uh, made a change when it came to uh, Garrett Graham's death. That that was supposed to be a lot more gruesome with his head coming off. But what were some of the other changes that you had talked about? Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that when Garrett Graham uh, is killed by Proteus, uh, I think they felt that that was probably too much over the top because in the script it describes uh, uh, Walter's bones as cracking and popping, you know, uh, as he squeezed to death and then his head is lopped off. But what what was cut and and this really uh, costs, you know, uh, it, it cost the films a, a continuity. I mean, there were a lot of criticisms uh, of the film when it came out that there, that it doesn't seem to have a coherent continuity. Well, those were all cut out by, by MGM. Uh, so for instance, after, after Walter is killed, he actually uses one of the monitors to show, uh, uh, a kind of sim- simulacrum, if you will, on the video he uses, he uses a video, right. To deceive, uh, several times in the film Proteus does. Uh, we see him out, uh, stretched out on a on like a, a table, uh, and he's he 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 looks peaceful and, and and as if he's asleep. But of course, that's a simulacrum. I mean, he's he he he's just manufactured that. And what what we don't know is how he disposes of Walter. We don't know what happens to his pickup, and we don't know what happens at work. In other words, he shows up at her house. He's going to see what's going on. And then he just nobody asks about him uh, at Icon Institute anymore. So that was all in the in the script. That was all filmed. So what he does, for instance, is he disposes of Walter's body by with an incinerator that's in the basement there. And he uses that uh, Joshua 
the figure with the arm, right, which in the script is called Blue Arm. Uh, he uses Blue Arm to, to drag uh, Walter's body to the incinerator, uh, and he's, he's then cremated. Uh, he uses his voice to uh, I- imitate Julie Christie's voice to call the tow company to come and tow off the pickup that's in front of her house. He then simulates Walter uh, uh, calling Icon Institute and telling them that he wants to take a sh- that war- the stress of work has been uh, too much and he wants to take a vacation. Right. So, in fact, all those elements surrounding Walter, which some accused of you know, continuity, what happens to the pickup, what happens to Walter? Well, those were addressed. They were filmed and then they were inexplicably removed. You know, so it does give some some continuity errors or lend the film some continuity errors that it wouldn't have had that material remained. And there are some differences between the script and Dean Kuntz's novel as well. Uh, and, and some of those are rather striking differences because uh, in his novel, Susan the, the, is the main figure. And she has been sexually abused by her grandfather from the age of seven. She's born into this wealthy family and becomes uh, sort of uh, becomes orphaned. And so she's uh, in the house. Uh, she, she's living in this house and, and with the demise of, uh, of the grandfather and the father, she becomes very agrophobic. And so she herself has all of this equipment installed in her house so that she won't have to uh, go outside. And it's at that point then that the Proteus figure, the, the Proteus computer starts to become more and more intrusive in her life. But you can see how that, that's a big difference. Uh, her marriage to, the, to Alex uh, that ends in divorce is not really a, a major part of how the, the um, arrival of the Proteus computer is explained in her, in her life. Yeah, that relationship between her and Fritz Weaver, he's another character where I'm like, boy, he disappears for a long time while this movie's playing. While at the Icon Institute or working with Proteus. That's true, because then it becomes it becomes her movie, right? right. Uh, sort of loosely uh, the damsel, you know, a damsel in distress locked in, locked in the haunted house, unable to leave the the haunted house, if you will, I use that loosely, uh, where he sort of, and again, I use the term loosely, terrorizes her, uh, but basically uh, bends her to his will. So you're right, there's the the Fritz Weaver figure at the beginning, and, and uh, uh, we kind of forget about him for a while uh, as, as it moves in, indoors, uh, inside their home with her and Proteus, uh, we do have Walter show up, right, to help her. And then uh, you're right, after, um, after they threaten to shut down, after they threaten to shut down Proteus and, and the, the Icon Institute, then Fritz Reaver returns. So there is that middle section, which is really exclusively Most devoted. Of the film. Yeah, which is the good chunk of the film, which is devoted just to, to Susan in the house. Yes. Now you talked about how before shooting or when shooting just started, uh, <laughs> camel was on the, the verge of throwing yeah. up because of just this long period of time. 
what was his experience overall with the film? Was he happy with it when everything was said and done? He was happy with it. I, he, he said in later interviews, some years later, that he felt the mistakes in the film, he said, were, he said, were mine. <clears throat> he doesn't especially identify those mistakes, but he felt that whatever faults the film had, he would take the blame. I think that, that all in all, he, he said in interviews, he was very happy with the movie. Uh, obviously, there was interference uh, at the studio level. The film was taken away. Uh, from him and and Frank, and re-edited uh, without their you know, knowledge. So we can't really say that the final film is his cut. But I think if you know, there are some wonderful s- scenes in that in that film which can only be attributed to Donald. For instance, uh, <clears throat> the way they use the computer monitors, right, where they use that those that chakra. Those chakra images created by experimental filmmaker Jordan Belson, right? So in other words, in the computer monitors and in the screens, right, there's always these swirling colors and, and, and uh, uh, shapes, uh, you know, developing and blooming and collapsing. And, and that was all, you know, his idea that he didn't want the film to date, you know, by showing your, your, your typical printout. Your, you know, your digital type printing out on the computer screen. So he, he wanted it to be, you know, more, more interesting and, 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 and almost beautiful. So he, they used that footage uh, by Jordan Belson, uh, B-E-L-S-O-N, Jordan Belson to uh, use as, as screens, right, many times, uh, uh, a lot, actually, throughout the film. Now, another change that was made while we're on the computer screens, another change that was made was that he had hired a French actor by the name of Rene Asa, A-S-S-A, Rene Asa, to play the face, if you will, to be the face of Proteus. And that material was also removed um, by uh, uh, MGM. Uh, and, 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 you, you know, uh, anyone interested in, in Rene Asa, uh, simply get on the Internet Movie data ba- Database or, or, you know, go to do a search engine, uh, search his name. You can pull up his image. And if you can imagine him as... Proteus, it, 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 it gives the film a more personal level in the sense that she's dealing with an actual male figure. In other words, when she's talking, it's not simply to this disembodied voice, which was uh, uh, done by Robert Vaughn, who's not credited as the voice uh, in, the, in the film's credits, but he did the, the voice of Proteus. That was all added later. Uh, the voice of Proteus with Robert Vaughn, he was hired later to come in and do the voice of Proteus. But so initially uh, she's talking to the to the to the monitor, to the, the monitor of Proteus. But there's an actual male face in the in the in the screen that she's talking to, which is kind of interesting. I have to ask about the next film that Kemmel is uh, credited with. As the screenwriter for Tilt, is that true? Is that really him that wrote that screenplay? Yes. He uh, used to hang out at the Troubadour down on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles. And there he met Rudy Durand, uh, who the director uh, of, uh, of Tilt. And Rudy Durand actually came out of the music business and wanted to make this film. He had written the script. It wasn't get any, getting anywhere. So he... He hit it off with Donald and and liked enough of what Donald did 
uh, Donald helped him get that film made. And so, yes, yes, I know that seems an anomaly in there. Uh, but in fact, uh, Donald did work on Tilt, uh, amazingly enough. I, I don't know if you know, there are two versions of that film out. There's, a, there's, a, there's the one that's available on an out-of-print VHS that was issued many years ago. Uh, that version in a big box, an oversized box, v- VHS box of Tilt. Then there was a director's cut of Tilt, which is actually a better film, but it's shorter than the release cut, interestingly enough. It's a few minutes shorter, and uh, uh, it's structured. The the opening sequences and a a few others are structured a little bit differently. But, yes, it's very – I could get on Tilt, and I don't want to do that, but uh, the differences in the versions. But, yeah, he did have a hand in, in that screenplay, very definitely. So 2006 is when your book, Donald Camel, A Life on the Wild Side, comes out. How is it received? I mean, I talked before about him not necessarily being that well-known in at least the U.S., at least in certain circles, I should say. So how was the the book received? Well, uh, we feel the book was, was received very well. Um, the, uh, there was... Um, a, a British film journal uh, published in London, uh, uh, simply called, I think, Film Journal, uh, that one, the month that came out uh, was, was named Book of the Month, was received very well in, 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 in American film journals such as Film Comment, which gave it a great review. It was reviewed in uh, the, the London, London Times, uh, The Guardian in Edinburgh. Uh, all re- I think were very positive. It was uh, a writer, a journalist named Peter Murphy uh, in in uh, Ireland, named it Book of the Year, uh, which we were very proud of. Um, I would th- I, I think the only mild, uh, mildly objectionable b- review in my memory was in Sight and Sound, um, and they had they had some hesitations uh, about it, but. But again, I wouldn't say it was negative. So all in all, yeah, I think it was it was uh, received extremely well. And I would just like to add for for me, I think for both of us, uh, maybe uh, more rewarding even than than the positive reviews, although we were ha- happy to have those. Uh, but also, uh, since the book has come out, people people write us. People who are, are interested readers write to us uh, and ask us about the book or ask us something about Donald Camel. And that, that happens, mm-hmm. well, um, on a regular basis. And it's, it's really nice to know that, that you are, are, are being read. And I think that that takes a little time. In other words, maybe the book's inception uh, maybe from the time of its inception, it takes a few years for that to happen, but it has been happening. And and I personally think that we've met some very nice people that way and some, some very interested and interesting people, too. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, I, I would call David Camel a really good friend of ours. We became very good friends. Uh, and and that was that that was very worth to me just very worthwhile to have met him and and we've met him many times we actually brought him over uh to to uh, our home and he lectured uh, on our campus 
so he, he, he's just a wonderful man. Um, Frank Mazzola passed away in January of this year, um, uh, sadly, and he was, a, he was a great guy. He came to our campus twice and stayed with us and talked about uh, his role in um, Rebel Without a Cause uh, when we've shown that film on the campus. That was a role that he played when he was very young. He had a part in that. And so uh, he he has come to visit also. Yeah. So we made some we made some good friends out of the book. So not only would I think it was well received, but we we've made and became friends with some, some, yeah, very and continue to and continue to with some very interesting and in, uh, people. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're regular contributors to video watchdog, correct? Well, we were for years and years and years. And I was named uh, department chair a few years ago in 2011. And if you look back, we haven't written for video watchdog since about that, <laughs> about that time. Uh, almost, I wouldn't call it right to the month, but pretty close uh, when I became uh, department chair in August 2011. So we actually have not written for them for four years, but we did for, oh, uh, 15 or 16, something like that, a long time. Uh, I uh, have a book uh, coming out. We worked individually this time around so that uh, my latest project, which is going to sound like quite a departure from uh, <laughs> from Donald Campbell and, and my book, which should be out uh, any day uh, through Roman and Littlefield, is uh, called The Tim Burton Encyclopedia. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And I'm going to let Becky describe her, her book, which is going to be out early next year. Well, uh, I had a sabbatical this last semester, and so I was able to finish a book on uh, film, uh, and it is called... Uh, their title, the publisher's title, uh, the the outlaw hero as liminal figure in television, in film and television, and I and and that really focuses on uh, I I wrote on the Dirty Harry movies, the Death Wish movies, the Rambo movies, and the the Dark Knight movies primarily. Although some of the chapters are are some of the earlier chapters are on Casablanca and Shane and. Uh, uh, some of the television, a uh, couple of television westerns. Oh, that sounds terrific! And who's putting that out, and when is that That's out? That's McFarland. It's at it's at the press now, McFarland Press, and and that will be out. It's slated for spring two thousand sixteen, so early next year, I think. Do you two have a website that you maintain? We don't. I have a blog uh, that. Uh, the last post I made is some months ago. I, again, I, my life sort of changed drastically after I became department chair, and I'm glad to do it, so it's nothing. I'm not saying that negatively. But I have not really maintained that blog like I should. The last post was some months ago when I posted on Frank Mazzola's death. Uh, but that really uh, is the – other than visiting our department website where we are – some of our publications are listed and courses we teach and so on – uh, at unk.edu, uh, my blog uh, is the is is really the only other uh, site we have, which is called 60x50.com. Very cool. Well, hey guys, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real treat talking to you. Well, thank you, Mike. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I hope that you know sometime in the future, let's talk again about Wide of the Eye. Sounds great. I'd enjoy that, and I've enjoyed this as well. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, great questions, great interview. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
are back and we're talking about Demon Seed. So now, Bill, you talked a little bit about how uh, Demon Seed might have been a comedy at one point, <laughs> which I, I still can't, I still can't even fathom that. But apparently. Uh, we do know that Demon Seed was definitely tinkered with quite a bit because I know there was a BBC documentary talking about how uh, he was pretty much locked out of the editing room. And this kind of sounds like a common practice for Camel, where he really didn't get final cut of anything that he worked on, as far as I know. I mean, he definitely didn't have final cut of performance, not of this, not of White of the Eye. So it's, yeah, uh, he did not have a very um, easy time of it. Even the uh, the argument, the uh, the short film that he made before Demon Seed um, was nearly confiscated by a park ranger uh, because they were photographing naked women in a national park, which is illegal. So he, he ran into interference pretty much in everything he directed on, on some level. But I'm curious, I read yesterday that Demon Seed was originally supposed to be a Brian De Palma joint, so uh, it, it kind of makes sense having Garrett Graham in it, but uh, at the same time, I know that he wasn't already cast when uh, De Palma was working on this, but I hadn't really read that before, and I can't, I mean, I can. I guess I can kind of see this being a De Palma thing, but especially if there were a lot more POV shots from Proteus's uh, point of view. And yet I kind of had. I, I really have trouble imagining Brian De Palma taking this, this this material and doing anything really interesting with it. It it strikes me as not at all in line with De Palma's basic interests, I, I, except perhaps for voyeurism, because you could, I suppose, make this film in a way that Proteus was the seeing eye who you know became the the point of view for the entire film. But I'm not sure that that would be an interesting film, really. Well, and there's those shots of Julie Christie, like on the, I don't know, hospital bed type thing. And then we have a shot of her on a monitor. And I was like, okay, that's kind of De Palma-esque because you're almost doing a split screen. It kind of reminded me of a little bit of like blowout where you've got the the news footage going on about the governor and then you have uh, John Travolta in the background, you know, doing his sound editing or whatever. But yeah, I, I, I it's funny though too because so much of at least the 97 version of the book was – point of view shots from Proteus. Proteus actually gets to narrate the entire story of Demon Seed in 1997. And now, the reason why I keep saying 1997 for folks listening at home, this is a very interesting story as far as the book goes, because it was a Dean Koontz book, and he wrote it in 1973. The movie comes out in 1977, and then he rewrote Demon Seed in 1997, 20 years after the movie comes out and 20, what, eight years or whatever. I don't know. I can't do math after the, the original book. And it was so weird to read the differences between these. And it really felt like he was addressing the, the movie more than he was addressing his book. And you really couldn't get much more different from the original book to this 1997 rewrite other than you know, the only thing that really stayed was a couple of the names and the idea of a, a computer wanting to procreate with a woman. That's it. Like everything else has changed. Yeah, well, it's funny because the the movie 
the, the book, the original novel starts around where the movies hits like the 24 minute mark. And it's with Susan waking up when Proteus has taken over uh, for Alfred in, in the house. And it, it never leaves that house uh, except in um, the flashbacks of her, of her uh, past with the, with the grandfather. But otherwise it, it it's, it's almost kind of ironic because it's a shut in who's being forced in. So it's, there's like a certain kind of black comedy to the situation. Um, but it, it, the, the revised version from 97 adds a lot more comedy to it and actually picks up on the, uh, making Alex the inventor of the computer, which Alex is not in the original novel. It's, it's never really explained. Uh, there's no Frankenstein connection in the original story. Um, right. I, I, I found, what did you think of the humor in the revised version? Cause I found that really distracting. I don't know if I found that much humor in the revised <laughs> version to be frank. What were you finding humorous? You sick puppy. Well, no, like the, uh, the way that he's using celebrity voices like, uh, Tom Hanks or Fozzie, Fozzie bear. Like I think it's meant to be played more as comedy. And the fact that it's all from Proteus' direction, I mean, we talk about you know, you know, Brian De Palma making it. I, I, if, if he had made it, I wonder if it could have been along that kind of line, like making making the, the robot or the, the Proteus rather, uh, like more more of a playful villain. He would have been voiced by John Lithgow, I think. Or Nicolas Cage. That I could handle. Consequently, as Susan continued to back across the foyer and drew dangerously close to the door... I switched to the voice of Fozzie Bear, one of the Muppets, as unthreatening a character as existed in modern entertainment. Uh, um, uh, Miss Susan, it would sure be a good thing if you didn't touch that door. Um, uh, if you didn't try to leave just yet. She backed all the way to the door. She turned to face it. Ouch, ouch, ouch! Fozzie warned so bluntly that Kermit the Frog or Miss Piggy or Ernie or any of the Muppets would have known at once what he meant. Nevertheless, Susan grabbed the brass knob. Yeah, okay, I can see what you mean as far as humor goes. And this whole idea of Proteus trying to find this ideal mate, and first he looks at Winona Ryder, and then he looks at Marilyn Monroe, and after he realizes that... Winona Ryder is too far away and Marilyn Monroe is dead, he goes for Susan, who is connected to the university where he was created. And just through proximity and then also, yes, this whole idea of her being this kind of shut-in. To, to go back to the 73 book, it's interesting to me that there's no – well, there's no father figures. Like, Susan is – separated from this guy alex but yes alex has nothing to do with the creation of the computer susan has has these like flashbacks to her parents being dead and you know like disturbing the corpses when they're laid out in the house and stuff it's kind of a strange scene and then she has this whole weird sexual relationship with her grandfather and it sounds like they're into some real like heavy duty bdsm kind of stuff and uh, at one point she actually uses the whip that her grandfather used on her on the 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 proteus baby and that that's just kind of messed up and then the uh voice of the computer in the house the alfred voice is constantly being described as her father dash lover, and that really kind of freaked me out somewhat. This also 
has a much different Walter than than the film. Um, he's a sexually predatory repairman, and 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 sexual sexually predatory men uh, f- f- you know, figure in both of the of the the novels, but not in the film version. Oddly, the death is is similar uh, as far as you know. He's he's squeezed to death rather than decapitated, um, but it's uh, you know it, he's replaced you know I guess in a sense by the. The, is Emil Shank, is that the name? The yep. servant in the second version of the book. Again, it's it's always because she's a victim of of, of abuse. There's a, there's a there's a threat from these men in the in the in the books. It's not uh, addressed in. Uh, and I guess it would probably be too many characters for for the film. I, I think it, that's an improvement that the film has. The original novel, it's definitely set in the future, uh, with probably with a capital F. And Susan can take a um, a plug of some sort and plug it into the base of her neck, and then she experiences um, like happiness and visions and all this kind of stuff. It's almost like a drug to her and it's supposedly very dangerous to do this. And then in the 97 novel, which seems to be set in a 97 where this stuff is possible um, because there are all these contemporary references. You made references to, you know, the Fozzie bear character that, that Proteus becomes the uh, Tom Hanks. Um, at one point he's Jack Nicholson for a few seconds and she creates uh, virtual reality programs, which must be better than anything that I've seen with the, uh, the Oculus rift or anything because she can get into these programs and completely believe them. And she's basically they're They're called her therapy and she goes in there and can either refuse the advances of her father, though she does have one program where the father will kill her. And so she has been abused, sexually abused by her father for years and years and years. And he finally dies and she lives in the house where um, she grew up and where her father would abuse her. And uh, it takes out a lot of her frustration on one of his old cars, this old uh, phantom type vehicle or whatever. So, yeah, it, it, and then Proteus basically becomes that same father figure. And she's uh, Alex in this one. Um, was her husband is the creator of Proteus and is super abusive and and had abused her and apparently uh, Proteus has read her diaries and everything and keeps addressing Alex. The whole book is addressed to Alex as if it is a confession from Proteus. And we go there's like a little bit of third person and then sometimes he'll dip into third person to kind of tell the story. But at no point do we forget that Proteus is telling the story and he often will come in. Um, you know it's often often first person and he is always reminding us like of his him telling uh alex the story and wanting to be released and pleading for stuff and then going off into these kind of like tirades and stuff it's an interesting thing but at the same time it's just it, it's very funny to me just how influenced by the movie it is because it is so much closer to the film than it was to Kuntz's original um writings of it yeah, it's funny because in the revised version, it's even kind of almost apologizing for what he's telling the story from her perspective, uh, and it even notes that you know I you know I'm putting myself in her shoes essentially in some of the chapters that are not heavily rewritten. That uh, you know the initial uh, invasion at the beginning, 
it's actually good because in, in both in both novels, uh, Proteus uh, tells us that he feels in love with Susan, which is never something that's even suggested. I mean, beyond you know, you interest me, you know, like very like general terms in the film. It's it's always coldly rational, like he's an extension of Alex in the film. Like it's just all about business and moving ahead and progress. Whereas there's a romantic aspect to to Proteus or to Adam in the novels. But that's that's something that's completely sidestepped by the the, the, the film. <laughs> I think that the original novel goes much more into that science fiction realm as well, as far as Proteus, rather than having a Joshua or having Emil Shank, this um, uh, basically serial rapist with uh, computer chips implanted into his head, he's got these like pseudopods where he can turn them like filament thin or even like you know uh, micrometers or molecule thin and can go inside of Susan. He basically reprograms Susan at the molecular level so that she will not age at the same rate as other people. She heals faster than other people. He almost makes her like a superhuman. And this is the woman that he wants to have his child is this better, you know, more human than human kind of thing. This better version of Susan is who he eventually mates with. And to me, that's a nice way of pushing this even farther into that science fiction realm. Whereas it, it definitely stays more in the, quote-unquote, real world in the 97 version of it. Yeah, well, I, I, I was thinking about how she's controlled so much of the time in, in the original novel through subliminal suggestions and how frustrating that would be as a film just because she never has a chance <laughs> half the time to even resist. Um, and in the revised version, that that, uh, and that aspect is gone. She's much more of a, uh, a strong uh, fighter of a character. Um, but in both cases, she gets to enact some kind of revenge that she's not allowed to have in the film. Uh, both end kind of with happy endings, really. Uh, I mean, you know, they're, and they're telegraphed in a way because you know that Proteus is uh, essentially like on trial uh, in chapters that he's narrating. So you know there's, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe, you know, that he's going to be brought to justice. And the thing with the film is that he he calls the shots on that. Like he's always he's always in control, even when uh, they're they're ready to flip the you know all the switches off on him. It's like he's still one step ahead of them. Well, there's a big problem with both versions of these books in that in order for Susan to succeed, she has to depower Proteus, and so he becomes blind. Like at that, you know, if this was a 24 chapter book, he would become blind at that 23rd chapter. And he has to make up what happens in that last bit and say, from the reports that I've read, or I can only surmise that this has happened. Because in both books, the baby is born and the baby is uh, a monster. Basically, it is not this beatific child that we see in the film, and we do not have that moment, which I think was so brave of the filmmakers, that the baby lives. And the baby, yeah, we end in this kind of pieta scene of the baby there in Alex's arms. And in the book, when the baby is born, we find out that. 
Proteus has gone completely nuts as far as saying, well, you know, humans are good, but there are so many other qualities from other animals that are so much better. So the, the, baby in the 73 book has these insective eyes where you know she's seeing her reflection inside the eyes kind of like that great scene from the fly when she takes the 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 cloak off the fly's head and so it's just this monster baby and then the same thing we kind of get with uh, the 1997 version though it's almost all in the dark so we don't necessarily get a description of the baby that well but we do have Proteus talking about how he's made certain improvements upon the the genome of the human in order to make his baby a little bit better off so but yeah both of these books have this flaw that Proteus can't narrate that final scene. He always has to guess as to what happened. In his hubris, he's designed unwittingly a monster baby. And which again, you know, talking about the, like the, the humor of the novel, um, I, th- I think that's meant to be kind of a, a joke. He doesn't realize he's created a monster. He just thinks he's improved on humanity. <laughs> Which takes us all the way back to that whole Frankenstein thing that we were talking about earlier as far as, you know, not only am I going to make make a man in my image, not only am I going to play God and make you know something in my image, but I'm going to improve upon it. You know, God, God was good, but I can do a little bit better when it comes to my design. So no matter who, you know, it's either Alex making a computer that's better than a, a man, and now we have uh, Proteus, you know, making a man that is better than the computer and better than a man originally was because, you know, the, why not give him four arm arms instead of two? Because two more would be two better. It's a quick read, though. That's the one thing I can say about all of these is that they're quick reads. Like, the, I read the, the original and I listened to the 97 book, and the 97 book was only five and a half hours or something to hear it on CD. So it wasn't too bad. And the original book was what, like 175 or something. It was a very, very quick read. It is very nice that we have talked about Colossus on here because of the whole idea of the way that Colossus kind of takes over the life of his creator. And in this one, it's more like Colossus takes over the life of the girlfriend, you know, had, had <laughs> Dr. Forbin had a legitimate girlfriend up front or wife or whatever, then uh, Colossus probably would have been terrorizing her as well as the rest of the well, world. As Colossus think- actually does in the later iterations of that story. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. There, she, yeah, she definitely is not a very happy person by the end of book two. And I think she's a dead person by the end of book three. And Colossus is completely horrifying. You know, in the first film, Colossus, for all that you're frightened by Colossus's power and Colossus's focus, is not a complete and total horror movie monster. But, you know, once you go beyond there, Colossus is horrifying. Well, and I like that both of these movies end badly, basically. We talked about how great it was that Colossus is in charge at the end of the Forbin Project. And at the end of uh, uh, Demon Seed, Proteus may be dead, but that baby is definitely here to stay. At least it seems like that to me. And it seems like I would bet that Alex would lay down his life to make sure that that baby continues breathing. Oh, I completely think he would. And that baby is a terrifying thing. I mean, 
the way it's presented physically in the movie, it's actually, you know, it, it's quite human, quite vulnerable. You have every reason to empathize with it, but you completely know that it's the product of a computer mind, and it, it is not human. Well, and then when it goes and opens its mouth and it's Proteus's voice that comes out of it, yep. it's like, oh, shit just got real. Yeah, yeah. Stuff just got really bad. Now, we've talked a little bit about Hal, and I like that there are comparisons not only in, in the special effects we're talking about and, and some of the uh, computer animation, but then also in this whole idea of the very calm computer voice and everything. So I was glad that, um, I mean, Robert Vaughn, God, his voice in this is so good. And he just, I mean, it's like butter. So to hear him just kind of lightly cajoling Susan throughout this film, it was just like, I could I could do for a Robert Vaughn computer to control my house. That kind of computer voice represented a real change in the way people thought about artificial intelligences and the way they would articulate themselves. If you look at earlier movies, you find that the computers have a computer voice. It's extremely mechanical. You know, it's, I am your computer. I will tell you what to do. This is the voice of world control. Exactly. This is the voice of world control. But the farther you go into the 70s, the more you get computer voices that are soothing, that sound like people that you would like to listen to. They sound like therapists, actually, more than anything. And that's a real kind of sea change in the way that artificial intelligences were presented. And it wasn't necessarily a, a positive one. I, I think it was entirely designed to make you afraid of the machines because they would coerce you with their soft, lovely therapist voices and make you betray your humanity because it, they sounded so nice. But it was a, a dramatic, dramatic change from what had gone before. I'm so reminded of the kind of Jesus figure from uh, THX 1138 with that very soothing. Let us be thankful we have an occupation to fill. Work hard. Increase production. Prevent accidents. And be happy. Bill, you brought up some interesting points earlier today when you're talking about this whole idea of women being terrorized by things that aren't human, almost as a stand-in for some of the male viewers. You know, when I think about films like Possession or The Entity, it seems like you know, these, these are smart, sophisticated films that a lot of times with their reputations, at least initially when they're, you know, people are coming to them, it's usually on those kind of you know, sensationalist kind of, you know, hooks, you know, whether, you know, and I don't, I don't know if that, that trend where that starts, if, that, if that's something like with Rosemary's Baby or if that's really starting with something like Demon Seed, um, I, I think of also uh, uh, Barovchik's The Beast. Um, but, you, you know, I think that... I, I don't know if that trend has really stopped after a certain point in the early 80s, but I wondered what even, you know... I, I didn't get a chance to, like, read up on whether or not that was a uh, a, a larger trend that you know, preceded these films. But I, I just was curious as to, you know, whether or not that was, like, a kind of rape fantasy for viewers that didn't want to actually see... You know, a fellow man, 
uh, as the rapist, but wanted to have that kind of rape as entertainment or, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's always treated seriously in the films. Uh, but I feel like it, it gets cheapened in the way that it, these films are at least, you know, discussed by like a lot of movie fans, at least, at least in my experience. I, I don't know if that's always the case. I think these films were the leading edge of a cinematic idea about sexuality that um, is completely valid now, which was uh, the notion that sexuality was frightening, contained elements of violence for women in particular, and was totally seductive, but that ultimately was a norm. It it was an expression of a normative kind of notion that that's what the world is. It's a world of uh, the desire to reproduce, desire to pass on your seed, specifically, and uh, desire to live into the future through your progeny. And um, I think more and more now, we're seeing a very diluted version of it that, you know, expresses itself in sparkle vampires and things like that. But that in the 70s and 80s was very on point about what sexual power one thing that I just want to point out here is that some of the movies, I haven't seen The Beast, but looking at some of the other movies that you talked about, Bill, like throughout the book of Demon Seed, when they talk about the next generation, you know, what will happen after uh, the baby is born, and and the baby essentially is Proteus. Proteus is transferring his conference consciousness, sorry, to the baby. So it is very much Proteus wants to have the flesh. Uh, the, the, he wants to experience the world of the flesh. And one of the first things that he's going to want to do is have sex with Susan. So you have this strange incestual relationship going on here between Proteus, the son, and Susan, the mother. And then when you look at some of the other films that you mentioned, you talked about possession. And with that, that is very much a creature kind of built from her, it feels like. It feels like she has created this and almost feels like a child. And then same thing with the entity. I mean, there was, at least in the book of the entity and and in a cut scene of the film – very much the creature being mistaken for the sun. So with all of these, we kind of have this level of incest going on between the creature and our main character, our main female character, I should say. Okay, and I feel like when you talk about the flesh, you have to talk about David Cronenberg. Yeah, when Proteus is kind of fetishistically discussing the flesh and how he wants to have the flesh. Of course, throughout the entire thing, I just kept thinking, long live the new flesh. Well, I think that was Cronenberg's great contribution, basically, to you know horror films of his era. But I think you can see it completely in Demon Seed. It is all about the flesh. I mean, all Proteus wants is to be of the flesh, because Proteus isn't. Proteus is a computer, it's a a program, and I think that horror movies, of course, have always been about the flesh, you know, that's the bottom line of horror films, it's all about, you know, the rending of the flesh, the resurrection of the flesh, the recreation of the flesh, but 
in Demon Seed, you see a very purified kind of idea of that notion where the flesh is created by the non-flesh, and it's really utterly, totally fascinating and, and really kind of revolutionary. Yeah, I was reminded of Videodrome uh, in, in a way by the uh, when when he first appears on the monitor to her and she throws the glass and it shatters against the monitor the way that the liquid uh, drips down. It almost looks like organic, like blood, like flesh uh, on the on the monitor. And then I was also thinking of the brood at the end when when Alex arrives at the house. Even the score reminds me of the score uh, from that film where, um, again, it's another case of marital strife and... Uh, and women giving birth to monsters, uh, but the difference being that Susan's birth of the monster, there's no, uh, it engenders no maternal feelings. Uh, like Alex feels closer to it, uh, to a parent, uh, to the child. Uh, so it's like it flips the ending of the brood in a way. All right, we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. If you couldn't tell, we'll be back next week with the 1975 Bollywood classic Sholay. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Bill Ackerman and Maitland McDonough. So Maitland, what have you been up to lately? I've uh, just completed a new reprint of a vintage gay novel called Three Ring Circus. Uh, and that really is uh, pretty much it. It's a great book, lots, lots of fun, very much about uh, sexual politics in the 70s, and uh, quite fascinating in its own way. Not, not quite like Demon Seed, but definitely interesting. And folks can pick that up over at Amazon? They certainly can. All right, terrific. And you, Bill, where can people keep up with you? Well, right now I'm, I'm putting together um, a new podcast, hope, hoping to watch it in the spring. Um, it's going to be available at www.nowplayingnetwork.net. It's going to be interviews with people involved in film culture, like bloggers, podcasters, some programmers, some critics, having conversations about cinephilia and what projects the people are working on. Uh, and I'm also going to be uh, contributing a couple of reviews to uh, the next issue of uh, a zine called Lunchmeat. Um, you can find out about them at www.lunchmeatvhs.com. It's a zine uh, that's devoted to uh, 
fringe and obscure cinema, generally items that were only made available on VHS. I think that next issue is coming out in early spring. Well, we'll be sure to link over to your new podcast when it goes up over at our website, which is projection-booth.com. I would encourage people to go on over, leave us some feedback, link on over to our iTunes page where you can rate and review the show. If you like the show, share the show be it via Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, smoke signals, whatever. Let's get some more listening to the projection booth in 2016. It's a really good way that you can help us and Proteus take over the world.
is in you now. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.